and welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Nick Richards, lead singer and founder of the band Boys Don't Cry, who had one of the most original and quirky songs, not just of the 80s, but of all time in I Want to Be a Cowboy, which peaked at number 12 on the charts. Nick talks about creating the song, why it only made it to number 12, and shares a fascinating story about its chart position involving the mafia and the FBI. Nick talks about making the video to Cowboy, which featured one of the most iconic people in heavy metal. Nick also owned the famous Maison Rouge recording studio in London in the 80s. He talks about some of the most iconic people in music who recorded there, like Duran Duran, Wham, Tears for Fears, Queen, David Bowie to name a few. He shares a couple really, really funny stories involving Paul McCartney and Duran Duran. Nick, proud papa of seven kids, talks about two of his sons who are in bands right now, which couldn't be further apart <laughs> and he also bought the house which doesn't own it anymore of a famous rock drummer and its playmate wife nick's a great guy i hope you enjoy this conversation i know i did And helping me relive my youth today is Nick Richards. Nick, how are you today? I'm absolutely brilliant. Thank you, mate. Thank yeah. you, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, thanks. Basking in the sunshine in Malibu. <laughs> yeah, well, finally here in Connecticut, we've been having nice weather for a while. The winter was kind of crummy. <laughs> That's great news. That's great news. Yeah, but let's, you know, let's, let's start, you know, the way, way back. Um, how did you first get involved in music? Well, funny enough, um, I was at a, a very, very famous boarding school in England called Millfield, and uh, they were very anti-boys um, putting bands together and things like that at school. So just to, just to sort of rock the establishment, <laughs> I was 16, and I put a band together just to see what would happen. And um, we finally managed to be the very first band ever to play a live concert at the school in the school grounds. And um, I was, that was it. I was an addict after that. I loved it. I realized the reaction from girls was brilliant. And, you know, I thought, oh, I like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was obsessed with the Stones. So I thought I was going to be the next Mick Jagger, you know. So I was completely obsessed. <laughs> so it was great fun. And I got the bug from that. I really did. And when I got thrown out of that school, um, because basically we got caught, we, we, we stole the housemaster's car one night and went and did a <laughs> gig a local gig, and uh, unfortunately there was a load of teachers <laughs> from the school at the gig. And, um, well, you can imagine what happened. We, we, we politely were thrown thrown out of the school. Um, it was about four days before my 17th birthday. But um, by then I'd come, you know, I was obsessed with music and writing. I'd always been obsessed with listening to music. Um, but by the time I was 17, I realized what I wanted to do. So this was, this was 1977. And um, I, I was, uh, I had a few piano lessons, a few guitar lessons, and I was writing. And I had some great friends around me who, who were helping me. I never had piano lessons or anything like that, but it was just a natural thing. And I started writing songs, 
and um, I got a couple of solo albums released in Japan, which did quite well. Unfortunately, um, they did absolutely nothing in Europe or America. They never, I don't think they were released. But that, that sort of kept me going in a way um, and kept my interest going. And basically, um, I decided in 1982 that I wanted to form a small record company, an independent label that we called Legacy Records. And I pinched a really good friend of mine from RCA to help me launch it, Dennis. And um, it was the big in thing at the UK right, right at that time. Indie labels were really starting to break through and get noticed at radio. And it was quite an exciting thing. And because I didn't want to give up as an artist, um, I also formed, I, I didn't want to be a solo artist, so I formed a band, which was really me, but called it Boys Don't Cry. Um, which was the title, it was a line from the 10cc song, I'm Not In Love. There's nothing to do with The Cure. Right. Everyone <laughs> always asks me about that. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, and it was in those days, it was quite a hit name. I mean, looking back at it, I think, oh God, you know, why did I call it Boys Don't Cry? But then it was sort of very hip, and I was always going to the, the, the real hip clubs in London where the whole new romantic thing was, was forming, and I was hanging out with the Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran and all these kind of people, Billy Idol, mm. um, the whole London crowd at that time as New Wave was breaking. Um, and that was all very exciting. And then in 1983, a year later after I formed the label, um, we hadn't really had any success, but we were, you know, it was early days with the label. Um, we saw an advert in the Financial Times newspaper in England for this freehold building, which was, which means it's not owned by the government or you have to pay for it 25 years later or anything like that. It was a freehold building, which is very exciting, in central London with a car park, which, believe me, was a plus. Right. That's a car park in central London. Oh, my God. Anyway, we went to the meeting, to, and it was owned. This is so funny, really. It was owned by Ian Anderson, who is Jethro Tull, of course. And he had built it, and he wanted to get rid of the studios and um, start off a salmon fishing business up in Scotland. <laughs> He'd had enough. And it was a purpose-built red brick building with two rooms in it, a licensed bar and restaurant, an office thing. It was right in the heart of it. I said, tell you where it was. You might know. It was right next to the Chelsea Football Club ground. Oh, wow. Um, in Chelsea. I know. So it was, they weren't a big club in those days, of course. Um, but whatever, that's where it was. So um, it was all very exciting. We thought we could run Legacy from there. And when we can't get rid of one of the studios, we can, our own acts at Legacy can, can record, and which is how I started to record and could afford to in dead time on a Sunday in one, what, either Studio One or Studio Two. Um, but to cut, of it, cut an incredibly long story short, obviously we bought the business and um, we got incredibly lucky, um, as you have to do in this business. And the very first project that we did in Studio One was the Wham! Fantastic album, wow. the debut album by Wham! Which, although it wasn't m monstrous in the States, in Europe and Japan and everything else was number one forever. You know, I mean, it was huge.
it really was a hit factory and it was known as a lucky studio and people wanted to record there because they thought it'd be a hit if they recorded there and that kind of thing, you know. And uh, we ended up doing two James Bond themes there, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, Duran Duran's View to a Kill, right. Living Daylight's Aha, and John Bar- And the great story about that, I'd become very pally with John Taylor from Duran Duran. And he loved the Mason Rouge and lived pretty close to the studios. But he had to persuade John Barry to record there. Okay. And John was used to these huge, you know, huge recording studios and old-fashioned this and old-fashioned that. Anyway, we did our homework. My wife did, did her homework. We found out that John Barry drank a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but he actually drank a very, very specific brandy, which wasn't easy to get. So anyway, John Taylor and Simon Le Bon bring John over to the Maison Rouge, walk him into the bar, and my wife has lined up the entire bar shelving with his brandy. And he looked at it and went, we'll start tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up doing two Bond movies with him there, which was quite a thrill, as you can imagine, you know. So that really, you know, there's, obviously you can go on and on forever about who, who recorded there. I mean, there wasn't many people I didn't work with from Queen to Bowie to McCartney. Sadly, my favorite band in the whole world never came. They're the Rolling Stones. But oh, okay. I lost my engineer to the Rolling Stones, Chris Kimsey, Nick, Nixon in the 90s. <laughs> and Chris, uh, Chris Matt, who engineered I Want to Be a Cowboy, well enough, ended up doing four Stones albums with Chris Kimsey. Right. <laughs> um, so, that, so I suppose that's my little connection there, I can say, you know. But um, so many fantastic artists. I mean, I was there with Freddie's last few days and recordings for Queen, and that was all very sad, but, but incredible at the same time. Um, I was involved with Bowie's um, Scary Monsters Super Creeps album, which okay. was a thrill. Um, Niall Rogers would record a lot. He, in fact, Niall loved the, the studio so much, he, end, he ended up remixing all the chic stuff because <laughs> <laughs> he loved Studio One so much. 
um, at the studio, which was a great thrill. And, um, you know, socially, it was an amazing, amazing place, socially. There was no one I didn't meet. But I suppose the great, one of the, the funny stories out of it, you know, there's me working with all these monster superstars and everything else. And um, in spare time, Little Boys Don't Cry would make these silly little records on a Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) The studio was free. Right. And um, I spent that weekend watching my favorite movie in the whole world, which is The Good, Bad and the Ugly. And um, I walked into the studio the next day on a Sunday, and I, I was smoking a cheroot. And I was singing to myself, I want to be a cowboy. <laughs> you can be my cowgirl. And the band looked at me and went, remember that piece of music we put down last year, but we didn't know what to do with it? And there was a sort of slight harmonica sound on the DX7 right on the intro and stuff. And I thought, oh, yeah, let's put that on.
And uh, basically, <laughs> we wrote the song that morning. I recorded it in the afternoon uh, vocally. Um, the I was a bit. I, I didn't think it was working because I was also doing verse two, and I thought that sounded it sounded a bit monotonous to me. So the drummer's girlfriend Heidi <laughs> was in the bar getting drunk, and she was from Norway, so she had that classic sort of, you know voice where it sounded like she'd just come over and was camping on the prairie, you right. know, getting over there. So we brought her in and changed the lyrics slightly for verse two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we mixed it with Chris, the guy who ended up with the stones. Uh, we mixed it that night, and Chris was 18 when he, he mixed and engineered that for me. It was his first big mix, um, which is quite ironic because the very following week he mixed Small Town Boy for Bronsky Beat. Okay, wow. <laughs> I know, I know. He had two massive quantity hits in, in, in a week, which was unbeknownst to him. But anyway, we mixed it once that night. It was never, ever touched again. And um, we sort of just left it there. And a couple of weeks later, one of the great projects that we did was um, the comeback album for the Everly Brothers, okay. which Polydor had, had put together. And it was all going to be done in London. And Dave Edmonds, Jeff Lynn, and Paul McCartney were going to produce it and write the tracks and everything else. And it was all very, very exciting and terrifying at the same time that these extraordinary people were going to be in my studio for a month, you know. And we were all so nervous about McCartney turning up. Right. And, of course, it was, this is one of my lovely stories. They, they all turn up. McCartney turns up, whole entourage, walk into the, into the bar area, and Linda McCartney's leading the way. And she goes, right, everybody, who wants a cup of tea? <laughs> and she waltzed into the kitchen and made everyone tea. Oh, wow. So you can imagine the whole place was like, <gasps> yeah. completely chilled out. Very clever. I mean, obviously she was used to doing that kind of thing, you know. Of course, yeah. But, but, what, was more, but, but what was more funny was that McCartney was really, really nervous about meeting his idol, the Evelyn. Okay. You know, he was absolutely gobsmacked and... <laughs> So starstruck about meeting the Everly yeah. Brothers. <laughs> anyway, cut a long story short, I become very pally over this period with Phil Everly. Oh, nice. He's one of the nicest guys that I've ever met in my life. Anyway, not many artists would ever come up to my office. <laughs> you know, that was a very private place for me. Um, but Phil came up and uh, just wanted to chill, and he was very excited about all the equipment. And, you know, they'd been used to four-track recording, and suddenly they were seeing 64 channels, solid-state logic, and it was really freaky to me. And um, he said, well, what, what, what have you been doing? I said, oh, I recorded this silly song last week. He said, I'll play it. I said, no, no, I'm far too embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> but he ends up, I said, I'll play it. And, um, so my story there is that Phil Everly was the very first American ever to hear I want to be a cowboy. And um, it's absolutely true. And he sat there laughing his head off, saying, this is going to be a huge hit record. I went, oh, don't be stupid, you know. It'll never even get released. And um, he knew then, he, he spotted it then, and he said, this is a hit. And um, so to go, to cut a long story short again, because there are quadrillion stories you can imagine on all this. Sure. Um, a friend of mine was a guy called Paul Oakenfold. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and in those days, he basically promoted 12-inch records at nightclubs in the UK. 
stop nightclubs, you know. So he'd get given a, a white label, as we call, so there was no artist written on it or title. You'd write the title on yourself. And he'd take it and play it at the, the real hip clubs in London or Manchester or whatever and see if he got a reaction, you know. And basically, he dropped one off at the Limelight Club in New York City okay. on, on a trip there with a friend of his who was obviously one of the DJs at the Limelight. And I didn't think anything of it. And he certainly didn't even tell me he'd done it. You know, I only found out much later. But anyway, six months later, I get a phone call from this, this guy, a, a little record company in New York City called Profile Records, um, who obviously at that time I'd never heard of. Um, they had a little band called Run DMC, who yes. <laughs> were doing very well in New York, but were not nationally, you know, so they had some money. Anyway, this guy hears it at the limelight, traces it back to me and says, we'd really like to put this out in America. I said, you're joking. He said, no, we love it. You know, we think it's going to be hit. I said, okay. He said, how much do you want? I said, I don't want anything. I said, if it's a hit record, ha, 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 <laughs> you know, pay for an album. Um, again, I don't hear anything. I, I, I just send them the masters and artwork and everything else, which George Michael's um, guy had done for me, Simon Fowler, same guy did all George's artwork, did the cowboy sleeve and everything else. And um, didn't think anything of it. And in 1986, on April the 3rd, which was my birthday, I get a phone call from Gary at Profile, thinking he's wishing me a happy birthday. <laughs> he said, congratulations. And I said, well, well, you've entered the Billboard chart at 90-something, whatever it was, right. with a bullet. I said, oh, uh, you know, cause it, oh, 90, well, you know, because I'm used to in England, if you went 90, it means you sold one copy, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he said, no, no, it's really good. He said, it's the first indie single to chart at Billboard for 24 years. And I said, really? He said, yeah, no, he said, it's big news. You know, this is really fantastic. I went, wow, okay. And then the following week, he'd ring me, and he'd gone up, and so on, so on, so on. And it kept, I didn't know what a bullet was, of course, and he had <laughs> to explain what a bullet was. Right. Um, and so this sort of went on weekly, um, and it was getting very, very exciting, as you can imagine. And um, finally, of course, it goes top 40, and I think, oh, my God, we really have got a hit record here. We'd better start putting an album together. You know, we'd only recorded about six or seven tracks in that whole two-year period. And we thought, oh, we need another four songs quick. You know, we think this album's going to go out there. Um, so we ended up finishing off the album and making one of the biggest mistakes of our careers, which I'll tell you about in a minute, okay. a song that we ended up recording. Anyway, of course, this was all huge news, and then we had incredible luck, like Dick Clark's bandstand played it three weeks in a row, which was unheard of, and then Madonna was on the air going, this is her favorite record at the <laughs> moment, she loves it. All these wonderful things were going on. And Clint Eastwood's campaign, they started using it for when he was running for mayor of Carmel. Right, right. And of course, the Dallas Cowboys were using it. There we go. And suddenly we had this monster record on our hands. And um, without knowing really what was going on at all, I mean, it was just all magical stuff, you know. Um, and in, an incredible publicity. My, my father and his brother... <laughs> had a horse in the Kentucky Derby that summer as well. Oh, wow. Um, and it was the first English horse to make the Kentucky Derby for years and years and years. 
because instead of talking about the halls, they kept going on about the record oh, <laughs> on national television, um, which was wonderful, you know. And um, all these things started to happen. And then, basically, the record got stuck. Um, and we didn't know why, because it was outselling the number one record. It, it got stuck at number 12. And then, well, hang on a minute. We were outselling True Blue and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. What is going on? And it wasn't for many years that we found out. This is a true story, because you can read about it in a book called uh, The Hitmakers. And basically, the FBI <laughs> had started investigating the mafia at radio and who was getting who and what the record companies were paying each time Michael Jackson put a single out or whatever, blah, 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 all the pyola that was going on. And all the major record companies basically stopped using the mafia for record promotion and they were unemployed. So Profile picked them up for nothing. And they said, how much is this going to cost? We're not going to charge you anything, right? We're going to show the majors just how powerful we are. And they took Cowboys all the way to 12, of course, until the majors got so pissed off about it that there was an indie record outselling everything that it got blocked at most of the retail at Walmart and loads of places like this. The record got blocked. <laughs> and although we were outselling everybody in the top 10, including the number one, it wouldn't move from 12, and it stayed there for like a month or something. You know? um, but we didn't know this for years. Like, right. I mean, it's just one of those fantastic stories. So without the FBI, I want to be a cowboy probably would never have seen the light of day, to be quite honest with you. Um, because without these kind of muscle men in those days, working records at radio and TV, I mean, we didn't have a chance. So um, it, was so, good, it was good and bad you know, then. <laughs> the incredible luck behind it all, it, it was just phenomenal. And then, of course, the luck turned completely because we'd recorded this song, which is a bit of a rock song, to finish off the album called Cities on Fire. Right, right.
And basically, Profile Records, in their wisdom, although radio was playing part of the program, Profile suddenly wanted to turn us into a rock act. <laughs> <laughs> and so they decided to go with Cities on Fire, which of course killed the whole thing completely. You know, radio was already playing Hearts Been Broken. Nobody could understand what the hell Profile were doing with this. And, of course, we ended up falling out terribly, as you can imagine. The whole thing was... And instead of selling a lot of albums, because it had two or three hit singles on it, you know... He's been walking all over Manhattan. Um, the album did okay, it went to 55 for billboard, so that's not terrible, but it could have done a lot better, you know. <clears throat> so um, it's just one of those things that happens. We had all the luck in the world, and then, of course, it just it turned the other way, as these things do. And, of course, the whole one-hit wonder thing, which, you know, was the big thing at that time. I mean, we, we recorded so many at the studio, so many huge bands, that we thought were going to be enormous, you know, it would have one or two hits, that was it. Local companies getting bored and just moving on or whatever. Um, so it really was an extraordinary thing. And, of course, it wasn't really till so many years later that 
being a one-hit wonder actually ended up being quite a cool thing, you know. And of course, we didn't realise at the time just how big I want to be a cowboy was. I mean, I'm not sure I've met an American that doesn't know that song, you know, even kids. Um, so that that is, you know, it really was an incredible thrill. And terribly funny at the time at the studios, you know, there's me hanging out with Tears and Tears and Duran Duran and all that, and I've got a bigger record than them at the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. It was very amusing. Right, and, yeah. and the video for the song was kind of iconic too. It had uh, Lemmy from Motorhead. How did you get well, him involved? Well, see, that's another thing that I got into. Um, at that time, in the mid-'80s, we could see that compact discs were going to be the next big thing. And we were buying basically catalogue of people who were going broke. And dear Jerry Brom, who owned Brom's Records, was in terrible trouble. We bought the Brom's catalogue off him for literally peanuts um, because we wanted to put it on CD. And he had URI, he put Motorhead, Bams, Bams, Earth Bams, whatever. So I ended up doing a lot of dealings with Motorhead over the, over the catalogue and ended up being quite pally with Lemmy. And I, and I rang him up saying, oh, we've got this top record that's it's just about to go top 40 in America, so we've got to do a video. We've got to shoot it tomorrow because they're panicking and MTV won't it, blah, blah, blah. And I said, would you be Lee Van Cleef for me? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of course I was thinking of the Spirit West. He said, and I said, how much is he going to cost, man? And he went, uh, just make sure there's a bottle of vodka for me, Nick. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> So he turns up at 6 o'clock in the morning on Hampstead Heath in London. My sister brings the horses, because she, she breeds horses. And uh, we shoot the video that day, um, edited it the next day, I think, and, and got it over to MTV as fast as you possibly could. And funny enough, they didn't particularly like the video, actually. Um, and I know this because Martha Quinn who is now one of my very best friends right. and neighbor here in Malibu. We're very close. Okay. And she told me that when um, when they got the video, because it was sort of a, a bit of a Mickey take and it wasn't, you know, Bon Jovi and all that kind of stuff, they were not that happy about playing it. But they ended up having to play it once it went top 40, of course, and then it was getting so many requests, they had to playlist it. Um, you know, eventually they just had to playlist it because people wanted it so much, you know. But, I mean, the video, I think it cost, like, $10,000, you know. <laughs> right, like, yeah. um, and it just worked. I mean, you know, and without Lemmy, I don't think it would have worked, actually, but funny enough. But, but I think he, he sort of tied it all in. He made it, it just gave it that little bit of speciality that it needed. Um, and I think it was vital that he was in there. It's so it's so funny how many people can comment on YouTube. You know, is that Lemmy? Yeah. No one can actually believe it. You know, um, that he would do something like that. But he was he was game for a laugh. Always was Lemmy. You know, um, great guy, great guy. And um, so that's how he was in there. And um, so I owned his catalogue for a while till I sold it in the early nineties. So that's how I knew him. Um, the Motorhead, of course, sold a lot of records in Europe. I, I know they weren't massive here, but in Europe they were huge, absolutely huge. Yeah, they were kind of you know, um, cult classics oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, fantastic live bands. Um, so that's how I knew them. So, you know, it, all these things sort of swim, swing in the roundabouts, as they say, and um, 
in, nine, in the very early 90s, a great friend of mine who was the keyboard player with Michael Mechanics, a guy called Adrian Lee. Oh, yeah. And, and he, um, he said, I want you to come over to my house. I want to show you something. I'm like, oh, God, what's this? Hmm. He said, this is called Pro Tools. Oh, yeah. I went, oh, yeah, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> he said, this is what's going to destroy your industry. Oh, no, you're kidding. Anyway, he said, to prove it, I'm going to record your next record in my bedroom. And I said, I'll bet it sounds better than how you could do it as Amazing Rich. Hmm. So he did. <laughs> <laughs> um, he recorded a, a song called Who the Am Damn Do You Think You Am? And uh, it was all recorded in his living room. And yes, it did sound as good as anything you could do on an SSL desk in a million-dollar studio. And I thought, wow, I wonder how long we've got left. And in Blind Panic in 93, um, a great friend of mine, Robin Miller, who was Sade's producer, he was sort of in the studio business and had a bit of an ego and and wanted to buy an Amazon Rouge. Richard Branson, by the way, used to have lunch with me once a year, every year, and offer me outrageous amounts of money to buy the studio off me. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I always used to say no, and he always used to go, I'll see you next year. <laughs> and we'd go and have lunch on his houseboat once a year. And right at the end of lunch, he'd go, right, 
are you going to sell it to me? I went, nope. <laughs> okay, I'll see you next year. Right. So anyway, but, and I didn't want to sell it to Richard. And um, Robin Miller came along and paid me a lot of money. And I thought, maybe it's time. I've had it 10 years. Um, it's probably enough. And is the independent recording studio going to survive? Um, he went broke two years later, hmm. so I made the right move. Definitely. Definitely made the right move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but wonderful days, just wonderful, wonderful days. I had 22 staff working for me at, at, at all times. It was a big, you know, it was a really big studio complex. And as I said, with bar staff and kitchen staff, security, you know, imagine when Duran Duran were coming. Oh, I'm sure. 2,000 <laughs> fans locked outside the gates, you know. Um, so it really was fabulous. And of course, when I sold the Rouge, that was also the end of Legacy. I mean, we couldn't keep Legacy going. And I just sold up everything, thinking I'd done my bit. Right. And sort of took 10 years off, literally, and, and had a huge family with my wife. Um, moved to the States. Um, not really having anything to do with music whatsoever, really. I, 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 the whole 90s and early... Uh, 2000s years just uh, just passed me by. I was just busy with family and things like that. And, um, and then, of course, this, I got approached in 2007. Uh, the 80s music was becoming really popular again. All the bands wanted to go out and on the road. And blah, 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 blah. I thought, oh, really? And there was so much interest in me doing it. Um, Joining bands like the Flock of Seagulls, Wang right. Gun, and ABC, and Bow Wow Wow, and all these things, you know. And so I've been doing that for the last seven or eight years, on and off. Um, I did release a new album five years ago, which didn't really see the light of day, which is very sad because my favourite thing I've ever done, actually. It's on iTunes. It's called Here It Is, um, H E A R. Here it is. Um, and, and I'm really, really proud of the album. I mean, it sold a little bit.
the thing is with the 80s, you know, people want to do original stuff. They're not really that interested in new stuff. Yeah, which is a shame. Finding out and things like that, you know, it's sad, but it's it's understandable. Right. You know, and in fact, I sort of agents say, no, you can't, you can't perform any of your new stuff on the shows. I'm sorry, they just want to hear the old stuff. You know, and I I get it. I I did get it. I understand it. You know, I mean, if you go and see Culture Club, you want to you want to sing Karma Chameleon, but you want to hear a new thing. You know, and. Roy Hay from Culture Club, the guitarist, he's, he's like one of my greatest friends. And he's godfather to two of my kids. And um, I got him playing again with us and Dion Estes. Right. Um, some, some fabulous people like that. And um, Annabella Lewin from Bow Wow Wow oh, yeah. got going again. And, you know, a whole load of us just came through at Clive Bangs and went in Rome. And, um, you know, we just have a lot of fun reliving our youth, I suppose, you know. I mean, nobody seems to lose any money doing it, which is vital. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just having lots of fun. And uh, two of my sons and one of my daughters have actually performed with me on these reunion shows, which has been the biggest thrill of my life, as that's you can great. imagine. I imagine, And yeah. that's been great. And, of course, they'd never seen me. They'd never even thought of me as a singer or a performer or anything like that. <laughs> so they, were, they were completely freaked out. Um, so that side of it's been wonderful fun, wonderful fun. Um, and bringing you right up to date, of course, my, my very eldest son, who's just turned 30, he's in a fabulous heavy rock band in London called Saltacara. Um, you can check them out now on my, uh, my page, my Facebook page. Oh, definitely. Uh, they've just released their first EP. I mean, it's that real European thrash metal thing, you know. I mean, oh, my God, it's all 100 miles per hour, and you right. can't understand the word anyone's saying, but <laughs> live, they're fantastic, you know, really fantastic. And then my very youngest son, who's just turned 17, Marlo, M-A-R-L-O, he's formed a band called the New Killer Stars, uh, New Killer Stars, which is a Bowie track, and it's sort of an ode to Bowie, and the logo is very Aladdin Sane-ish, you know, that kind of thing, and... Um, He's put a little band together, and Piers Brosnan's son, Paris, is the drummer. Okay. It's great fun. That's great fun. And um, they're halfway through a, a debut album, um, and it looks like we're going to be able to sign them to Atlantic Records, um, which is seems to be very exciting to me, you know. And he's, he's a great writer, great, great musician for his age. I mean, he's... Amazing ideas, complete Bowie freak, Pink Floyd, all 70s stuff. Right. I caught, I, I caught him listening to 10 years after the other day. I mean, what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I couldn't believe it. I said, well, how do you hear about that? You know. Um, so it, it, that's great fun. So my whole interest is going round and round in circles again. And, and um, he's going to be, funny enough, I'm getting Marlo. Marlo's going to play bass with Boys Don't Cry in a big show in Vegas. In, the, in August or September, September, I think. Um, so get him, get him experienced and things like that. You know, he can play any instrument, so it doesn't, doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And um, yeah. my, my eldest son will fly over that as well to play lead guitar. And uh, Billy Ray Cyrus, his drummer, David Reeman, is a great friend of mine. He's going to play drums for me. So it's, it's a, a, yet another reincarnation of Boys Don't Cry, you know. As I said, Boys Don't Cry was always me and whoever I wanted in the band right. at the time. Um, that 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 was it. I just didn't want to go out as Nick Richards or whatever. It was 
uh, you know, I was hiding behind the band name, yeah. basically, um, which is what I wanted to do, and I still do that. Yeah. Do you have any um, uh, plans coming to the East Coast? Well, no, I never get invited on the East Coast shows, which is really annoying. Um, Lost Dates do about 30 shows during the summer period, autumn, summer. But I always end up doing, you know, the West Coast, right. Dallas, things like that. Obviously, Dallas, as you can imagine. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but for some reason, uh, and I don't really know why, other than my agent tells me that basically the promoters don't remember I want to be a cowboy. Really? Wow. On the East Coast. Yeah, I mean, which is bizarre, because obviously it was a hit all over the place, especially right. in New York. Um, so I find that rather odd. But unfortunately, um, no, I don't get invited on the East Coast shows. Oh, and I'd love to do them. I'd love to do them. But yeah. I, it's one of those things, you know, the agent says, this is who I've got on, on the roster for this, this year. Who do you want? Um, and sadly, on the East Coast, Boys Don't Cry seems to not get the vote, you know. Yeah, that's, that's too bad. Huh? Oh, no, sad. Yeah. But there we go. I'm, I'm only doing, sometimes I do about 20 shows a year, but this, this summer I'm only doing four or five, to be honest with you. Okay. You know, most of my most of my work's going to be with the new Killer Stars, right? Um, and I'm just doing a few because they're good ones, like Las Vegas and Dallas, and like that. Yeah. Los Angeles, and my favorite one of all, the Mountain Winery in San Francisco, which is just divine, beautiful open air, Roman kind of theater, right in the in the you know the wine country. It's absolutely gorgeous. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so I always say yes to that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Obligated that one. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. I know. Yeah. It's funny. I, I was um, I bumped into. I was sitting at a bar once, and Troy Aikman was sitting next. To okay. Me. We started talking, and of course, I was like gobsmacked. I'm sitting next to Troy Aikman, but he was actually more gobsmacked that I was the guy that did. I want to be a cowboy. Oh wow. <laughs> which always, which always makes me laugh. And that was, you know, it just shows how big the, the, the record was. I mean, it was number one in Dallas for like 12 weeks, not right. stop. It was huge at, at every station. Right. Um, so I'm hoping to sell a few T-shirts there this year. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pay a few bills. Yeah. Pay a few bills. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, obviously there's a quadrillion things that have happened in my, in my life musically and who I've worked with and that, but it, it, it basically would have to go on for a year with the interview. Um, I'm always being asked to write a book about the Maison Rouge days and um, Joanne Joanne's official autobiographer, Steve Patello, he keeps ringing me saying, oh, please, we can just do a book. And, uh, it's just that we we had a fantastic reputation. You know, everything was very private. Things were behind locked doors. You know, stories got buried um, properly, you know, yeah. and for suddenly years later, for what? For what you know, why should I start yeah. saying silly things about George Michael or Freddie Mercury or David Bowie or whatever. I mean, why? You yeah. know, it's ridiculous. So I, I say no. Right. Um, and just tell, you know, fun things. Yeah. You know, not, not the crap things that would happen. Right. Like, you know, that's yeah. what I want to remember anyway. Right. Like, one of you my know. favorite bands, if not my favorite, is Tears of Fears. Any fun yeah, stories yeah, yeah. with them? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, 
funnily enough, <coughs> we had the same management okay. uh, talking at, at Outlaw at that time. Um, the Cowboys had just become a monster record, and Paul King approached me about management and took us on. And I love Paul. And he then started basically, although the boys lived quite a long way from London, they lived in a, in a town called Bath, right. on the west side of, of England. Anyway, um, he brought them along, and they loved the place, and um, they ended up doing. I would say 80% of the sewing for Seeds of Love album. Okay. Um, so, and the, one of my wonderful stories, they, Roland and Kurt love playing table football. I think you call it foosball here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we used to have these huge tournaments, foosball tournaments, in the music league type thing, and Roland and Kurt were always playing with us. And Paul waltzes into the, into the living room area of the studio with a big smile on his face. Boys, I got this check for you, and we're busy playing football. And Roland or Kurt, I don't know which one, opened it up, looked at it, put it down, and continued the game without changing his facial expression whatsoever. <laughs> wow. <laughs> anyway, I glanced over at the check that he just looked at. Yeah. And it was for six million pounds. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the table football was far more important right. at that moment <laughs> than this enormous check right. that had Paul running around the studio dancing with joy, you know. Um, so that's how I remember the, remember them, to be honest And funnily enough, my, my ex-wife has kept in contact with them um, because she lives in the same town, Bath. Okay. Um, I haven't seen them for years, although... I, I was trying to get Kurt to, to come on the Lost 80s for a while, but gave up on that. It, um, he didn't seem to want to know. Um, but we got a Human League last year. They started playing with us, which was great. And I loved Human League. They never recorded the Mason movies, but I um, loved them. Yeah, I saw them about seven years ago. They were, they were really yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you, uh, you so still live in... Really, yeah, in a bucket. So is there anything you need to know that I've missed? Well, one one question. Uh, you still live in Tommy Lee's old house? Oh, no. No? <laughs> no, I bought that in um, 2008 um, and had it for about five years. Right. And truthfully, it needed so much doing to it that the cost <laughs> of running that place was enormous. Um, but we did keep the swing in place. <laughs> <laughs> That was always left there. Yeah, just had a sanitizer, <laughs> um, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and funny enough, I, I met I met Tommy many times in Malibu, and he's like, I told him I bought his place, and he was so happy that a big family like ours had bought it, you know. And there'd been a terrible tragedy there, and a little child had died in the pool there, um, and it was all, you know, and I myself have lost a child in a swimming pool accident many, right. many years ago. So we had that in, uh, you know, and uh, we sort of bonded over that. And um, he's a lovely guy. But it's funny, while we were living there, the groupies would still come all the time, thinking he still lived there, you know, and have these unbelievable chicks turn up at the gate. I can imagine, yeah. Oh, bro, hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. But uh, no, so I don't own that now, but we we now live on uh, Zuma Beach. Okay, that must um, be nice. In Malibu. Yeah, which is lovely. Yeah. Absolutely lovely. Yeah. And it's a great, you know, very creative atmosphere. And, 
It's certainly working for my youngest son, that's for sure. Right. He's turned the garage into a little recording studio, you know. Um, and I'm sure they're using Pro Tools, it. right? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm keeping my fingers crossed for him. The feeling of having a hit record, a proper hit record, is oh, nothing beats that. Right, know? yeah. Well, I, I hope it works out for both your sons. That's great. Mm. Yeah, me too. That yeah. would make my life very complete, I have to say. It would be fantastic. Um, but, yeah, no, it's all, all is good. As I said, I'm the father of seven children, same wife, Debbie, and um, got a lovely large family. The eldest two live in England, and the others all live here, all over the place, at college and everything. I mean, um, I've just turned 58, so I don't feel like a young man anymore. <laughs> but I'm still going to do the gigs. I still do the gigs. Right, yeah. Keep myself fit. It's always a good way of losing weight and getting fit again. You know, knowing you've got shows to do and, and everything else. Yeah, so it's a good motivator. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's yeah. great, I suppose, actually. Yeah. I love it. I love it. But, Nick, but this, there we go. Yeah, this, this is great. I really appreciate a few minutes tonight, and best luck with the tour and, and, and with your sons. Uh, um, uh, thank you. Thank you. And I, just, as I said, if you go to my Facebook page, you'll always be able to see what's going on with both, both of the bands, really. Um, I put a lot more up on them than I do on Boys Don't Cry. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, I get, a slap. I get a slap from my wife. And a special thanks to Nick for joining us today. Like he said, you can follow him on Facebook at Nick Richards. You can follow the band on Twitter at Boys Don't Cry 1986. You can follow me on Twitter at the first in all one nine. Be sure to like the page for Living My Youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. If you don't have iTunes, not a problem. Just go to Podbean, go to SoundCloud. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. Can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Reliving My Youth real soon.